Hi, this is Alyssa McNamara-Reed, and I will be your host for the next two hours. Allow me to introduce myself. I am a certified financial planner practitioner and an investment advisor. I am co-owner of McNamara Financial Services, Inc. in Marshfield, Massachusetts. McNamara Financial is a federally registered investment advisor, and by my definition anyway, is a true family business. We work with clients like you every day, regular people that need help making sound financial decisions or people that want one less thing to worry about. I work with clients for a fee based on assets that I manage or an hourly or flat fee for creating financial plans. I am not compensated via commissions unless I have the pleasure of helping someone with their insurance needs. There are some things worth paying for and perhaps a lifetime of financial security is one of them. I of course cannot guarantee that working with me will ensure a secure financial future. McNamara on Money has been a call-in talk radio show since 1990. I love hearing from listeners and there truly are no dumb questions. In fact, I like the simple questions because everyone should have the answer to those. Just don't call me asking for the next hot investment or which market is going to outperform this year. Number one, that's not the nature of this show. And number two, I have no idea. Any advice I give to a caller is meant to be generic in nature and should be verified with his or her own financial professionals. You will hear about a variety of topics on this show that relate to investments and personal finance. We try to cover topics that people can relate to regardless of their net worth or financial situation. And of course, we try to keep it interesting. I would crunch numbers for two hours or spreadsheet cash flows because I'm a total math nerd, but that wouldn't much make for good radio. Instead, I choose to educate people on topics surrounding big financial events in life, like marriage and divorce, kids in college, death of a loved one, career changes, and of course, retirement. I once heard that it is a smart man that knows what he doesn't know. I'm sure it was my dad that said that, and I'm also sure that it applies to women. That is why I invite guests onto my show that have expertise in different areas also related to personal finance. I feel it's important to note that the opinions of these professionals are not necessarily the opinions of McNamara Financial or any of its advisors. As long as we are on the subject of disclosure, I should note that while we may discuss investments and or markets on this show that past performance is not indicative of future results. Thanks for tuning in. Good morning. Back to business it is. You're listening to McNamara on Money, the South Shore's very own financial talk radio show. I'm Alyssa McNamara-Reed chatting this morning about estate planning and legal stuff, um, which I feel like I understand well, but I, I know that my terminology is lacking in the legal world. Uh, it all makes sense in my head. Most of it makes sense in my head, but I... Um, well, I never studied law other than, you know, courses here and there. But um, I know that my terminology lacks. But you can correct me, Danielle, when I make a miss, when I when I incorrectly state someone, state something. Um, I'm talking this morning with Danielle Van S., who's an estate planning attorney at DGVE Law in Hingham, the f- owner and founder of DGVE Law in Hingham. Um, and we're talking about estate planning today specifically for families. We've talked about trust. We've talked about the estate, sort of the estate planning process, some of the documents that um, people might need, want to look into, consider for themselves if they don't have them already or have reviewed. As you talked, um, you recommended reviewing every few years. I, I generally hear seven to 10. I mean, um, but- A lot happens in seven to 10 years. You know, if different attorneys will do things differently, obviously, and run their practices differently, I don't know how many attorneys offer a free review of documents every three years like this. I don't know that there's many, or if they do, their clients don't know that they do. I'm guessing there's not. I no, haven't. A lot heard of my that. colleagues think I'm crazy for doing it. Um, but it works for me. Yeah, they might. You know, uh, so you know, I don't know that people necessarily are excited about. Oh, I'll pay you know 500 bucks again for my legal documents to be reviewed, and nobody's ever excited about that. But 
That's um, why I don't charge nice for the you, review. That's so. nice that you do that for your clients. That's right. that's really a nice um, nice benefit. So we wanted to um, sort of wrap up the show this morning by talking about. Well, I thought maybe talking about things that can go wrong. I can think of one situation where estate planning would have been very nice, but there was not any. Um, I'm sure you have lots of stories. But before we get there, we'll just finish talking about trust because you mentioned retirement trusts, which I did not have on my uh, outline here, um, which I don't see very often in my business. Um, but you wanted to, I mean, here's your, this is your opportunity. You wanted to bring this up as a, as a tool for people. Um, and, uh, you know, I've had some experiences with trust being named as beneficiaries on retirement accounts in my world. And I feel like they cause a lot of headaches, but but I want you to, you know, let people know why they might be a good idea. Right. Um, because I've seen situations where it maybe they didn't need to be. Maybe beneficiaries didn't need to be um, titled like that and things would have been a lot easier for people. But so why don't you... From your point of view, retirement trust, why do people need why would people consider that? Right. So this is something I've been exploring in my practice more and more recently. Previously, when I first kind of heard about this concept many years ago, I thought we don't really need this because we're going to have one of two situations. Either we're going to have beneficiaries who don't have special needs, who are capable adults. Let's just name them directly as beneficiaries of these. They'll get the benefit of the stretch out. They can keep the accounts tax deferred, you know, as an inherited IRA as long as possible. And isn't that great? We can just no problem. Um, The problem, as I understand it, and I'm not sure where the statistic came from, it's stuck in my head, I don't know how current or reliable it is, but I've heard over and over again that 65% of inherited retirement accounts are liquidated within the first year. I just spoke with a friend recently who was doing just that. now you understand or they understand that there's going to be potentially a penalty and tax consequences to doing that to taking it out early to taking it out all at once yeah people do it anyway because this again this goes back to the concept of this is gravy this wasn't money that they were counting on so let's just back up a second so when when someone with a retirement account ira 401k 403b um retirement account when someone dies and their beneficiary, let's just say they're not a spouse. Mm-hmm. So let's say their beneficiary is their kid. The the adult child, let's just say in that example, has a few options. The first one being they can keep the IRA as an IRA in their own name. It would be what's called an inherited or a beneficiary IRA, mm-hmm. otherwise known as the stretch IRA, meaning that you're stretching out the tax deferral. Um, income and you know dividends interest are not taxed as earned in a retirement account, which is why they're called a tax-deferred account. So a, a non-spouse beneficiary can keep the IRA as their own, but it's called an inherited IRA, and there's this little caveat that they need to take a small distribution every year based on their life expectancy. So that's what's called a stretch IRA. And for most people, that's probably what they should do because they're building their retirement nest egg. How many people have a sufficiently sized nest egg um, at any given point in their world? And you know, for, for many people, that would be a great um, way for them to proceed. It's sort of like our default recommendation, like, hey, if you can keep this and just add it to your nest egg and take a small distribution annually, you're probably much better off for your own retirement. Um, the beneficiary also has the option to just close out the account, cash it out, take the cash. There's no tax 
penalty to do that when you inherit a retirement account, but there are income taxes, and the percent of your income tax burden is based on your other sources of income in that year and the size of the distribution. So if you take $5,000 out of your inherited IRA, it's probably not, it's just taxed at your regular income rate, whatever your tax bracket is, probably. If you take $500,000 out of your IRA, you are welcome to the highest tax bracket, most likely. And um, and and so, so no penalty, but you're gonna pay 40% in taxes easily to take that out. Um, the other option is they can take it out five years later, and you know that's not not commonly taken advantage of in my world anyway that I see. So, um, I just wanted to—I forget why I jumped into that—but I wanted to give people a background regarding what happens, and that's if you name someone outright. And what if it, the account were an inherited IRA established as such and left alone for a couple of years, and then the beneficiary wanted to pull it all out? Say, same thing, Ta- taxability, no penalty, but taxability depends okay. on whatever their income tax bracket is in that year, which is determined by their other sources of income and the amount that they're taking out. So they can, it, it's not that they have to make a decision in the year of death. They can keep that as their inherited IRA forever, or they can close it out at any time in the future. And they can take with, an, a beneficiary can take withdrawals of any amount at any time from their account, but they will always pay income taxes on whatever amount that they take out. out. Where things get a little sticky is when, well, when there's no beneficiaries and we have an an estate-owned IRA, that gets a little bit sticky um, because then that becomes a probated asset. And things also get a little bit sticky from my point of view when we have a trust named as a beneficiary because then then you have a trust owned inherited IRA and if you stretch that out and you take required distributions it's based on the oldest the age of the oldest beneficiary exactly and so then arguably the youngest beneficiary can be negatively impacted because their required distribution is is higher than it should be um, and also it's just you know in my experience like let's say that that it, that uh, uh, a trust is named a beneficiary and let's say there's of a, of a retirement account, let's say that in that trust document, there are four beneficiaries of the money in the trust. So now we have four, probably, you don't necessarily have to do it this way, and we would work with the trustee to determine the best course of action, but we could potentially have four separate trust-owned inherited IRAs, one earmarked for each beneficiary of the trust, but that trustee, whoever he or she may be, is now managing all these separate accounts because the beneficiary of the trust is not the trustee, or could be one of them is, but or one or two of them are. Um, so lo- logistically, it's a little bit complicated, but I wanted you to weigh in on reasons why someone would do that. I'm guessing special needs is one of them. Um, but I, there could, I guess there could be others. So, so what, where this always comes up for me, or most frequently comes up, I guess, are one of two circumstances. Either we have really sizable inheritance um, yeah. assets coming through these qualified plans. And so we're talking, you know, well north of a million dollars, maybe two young adult beneficiaries, 20-something-year-old kids. And we're there saying, yep. 
I'm not sure I want these 20-something-year-old kids to have half a million dollars apiece that they can immediately liquidate with nothing but income tax problems to worry about. Yeah, yeah. So maybe we ought to do something different. Fair enough, Um, yeah. The other one is what you just mentioned. If there is not an adult beneficiary, it's either if there's a default of beneficiary designation, it's going to the estate. But similarly, what we all do, all of us parents of young kids, is we name our children as our contingent beneficiaries. Yeah. And sometimes people will say, you know what, I am, you know, I can't name a spouse, but I'm going to name my sister and she'll take care of everything for my kids. <laughs> oh, like, well, like now the ta- it's the sisters, like, oh, from right? From a tax point of view, that's it's yeah, awful, it's awful for your planning. sister. Don't yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, so when we have minor children beneficiaries and we've got a long time to figure out what kind of an adult they're going to be like. As a backup, maybe it's safer to have that default into a trust, but then we come into the trouble that you were just mentioning, which is what is the measuring age for those required minimum distributions? So again, using myself as an example with the age spread I have, if we use my oldest daughter's age as the measuring age, it's not quite fair to my youngest daughter. Right. And even worse, if my trust names remote contingent beneficiaries, this is the God forbid my husband and I and all four of our children die, yeah. right? Th- this is the now where does everything go? Yeah. If I have older people named, like siblings, for example, or if I have charities named, yeah. well, now I just really caused problems yeah. because yeah. now my trust is for sure not going to be a qualified beneficiary right. to receive the retirement assets. Right. So rather than muddy all the waters, an alternative is to set up a trust for the sole purpose of capturing of retirement being, Exactly. So yeah. don't muddy the waters with all the other assets. I like it, just Danielle. It. I like it. <laughs> I'm starting to so, like it, too. So but elaborate on that right. and how it solves those problems. So what you can do is avoid all of the problems that you would have with these other kinds of trusts where you can solve for what the measuring age is going to be, not adding charitable beneficiaries, not adding older beneficiaries than your intended original beneficiaries. Yeah. Um, and then you can have that all kind of fail safe to your revocable living trust in the event that that falls apart. So you can set this thing up during life. It's not going to own the retirement accounts. Yeah, I can't do that. It yeah. will just receive them someday. It'll own it maybe. after your death. Yeah, yeah it's, it's kind of an insurance policy on the retirement inheritance. Okay. Um, so this could be something that either a parent sets up to benefit the, the young adult child that they don't want to just kind of have it outright um, to liquidate if they will to uh, be set up by a parent of very young children who's not quite sure what they're going to be like down the line yet, Mm -hmm. or even for the person who's going to inherit through his or her own parent. If you know that you're coming into retirement assets north of, you know, half a million dollars, you might say, you know what, I really want these to go into this separate pot because I don't want them to all get commingled and mixed around with all these other things. I want to structure the way that this gets distributed. Okay. So it's just kind of a clean way to manage it and uh, solve for all the other problems that we talked about before about why would somebody want to have a trust in the first place. Yeah. I feel like retirement trusts are not all that common. I've only seen them one or two times. Are they relatively new? I'm not sure how new. Definitely uncommon. Like I said, it's something that I've started to incorporate into my practice more recently. I didn't think it were necessary, but enough of these conversations yeah. with financial advisors yeah. where they're saying, um, like you are, that most well, of the time it's better just name, to name the, the adult and, and then we see what happens when that happens. Yeah. Well, barring a situation where there is this retirement trust, I don't think most attorneys would recommend that 
a living trust, for example, as beneficiary of a retirement account. It seems like most attorneys recommend just naming the adult children outright, assuming there's no special needs or anything like that. So whenever I see a beneficiary named on a retirement account for one of my clients, I always just say, are we sure about this? Right. Maybe you should make a phone call or again, take out that letter that made you cringe your your, your estate planning, you know, cover letter on that in that binder that you have just to confirm that there's a reason for that. If there's a reason for it, of course, we, I've had situations in the past where there where there um, there was a special needs situation with one of the kids. And, and that's why the trust was named as a beneficiary beneficiary and of course if there's a reason for it and you know we talked about the required distributions and when there's an age differential among beneficiaries but really if you if you crunch the numbers even if there's a 10-year gap in age it's not a huge negative impact to the youngest beneficiary it is an impact but um, it's not significant but I I always just have my clients just double check because there have been times where people said you know some people might assume that if I have a trust, my trust should be beneficiary of everything and everything should be in my trust. And that's not necessarily the case. No, right. Um, so sometimes people just name the, the trust as beneficiary, not having had that conversation with the attorney. And, and I so think I just, um, what we've been talking about should really bring it home to your listeners that you really need to have your financial advisor and your lawyer yeah. and your accountant yep. talking together yeah. so that they're all giving you advice. You, you want to be rowing the boat in the same direction, yeah. so to speak, right? Yeah. Um, if you're telling them to do their beneficiary designations one way and I'm telling them to do something else and then their accountant is saying, but do you understand the tax con- yeah. consequences of this? And the poor client is like, And the client's in the middle. Know. So yeah. really it's, you know, you want to yeah. have that dream team of your accountant that is responsive, that you trust to give you that tax advice and will gut check and double check your lawyer and your financial financial advisor and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. No, it's nice when you have a team that cooperates together. Um, All right, we just have, I don't know, 10 more minutes or so. I just wanted to um, just throw out any um, stories or anything that you have regarding someone that didn't plan and, and what went wrong. I can think of one that I'll share. I'm sure I could think of more if I spent more time, but um, one that sticks out in my mind, and we're, and we're not even talking about a lot of money in this situation, but it was a huge headache for this person. Um, I have a client whose ex-husband passed away. They have two children together. There was no will, not a ton of assets, but there was no will, and there was a life insurance policy from years and years ago where the children weren't named as beneficiary. I think the ex-husband's mother was named as beneficiary. And um, my client felt very strongly that the children should be beneficiary of this life insurance policy and you know, went through the steps to ensure that they eventually received that money. But I'm talking like, five years of Mm. headaches for this person and we're not even talking about a very significant sum of money and I can I just can imagine that that the you know the headaches multiply when there are more assets involved um, and more moving pieces and so you know I mean literally it's been five years and she's still sort of trying to wrap it up you know she had to apply for conservatorship and um, you know, I, I, I don't even know if she ever tallied up the legal fees involved with this, but I'm sure they were much more significant than they would have been if there was just an estate plan done or a will or even just a will yeah, or, just or naming the basic. life insurance properly. Right. I mean, that would have solved um, that would have solved the problem or many of them anyway. But, um, you know, I just didn't know if you had any other experiences where obviously you're you're doing the planning for people. So your clients 
um, don't have these these problems theoretically, but I'm sure people have walked in your door and say X Y Z happened, and that's why I'm here. Oh right? yeah, yeah. And and I do the po- the post death probate and trust and estate administration as well. So I am doing the cleanup on the back end oh. um, for things that I did not draft. Yeah. Um, two mistakes jumped to mind. So many things jumped to mind when you were saying yeah. that. Yeah. Um, one of them with regards to the legal fees, the investment in paying for paying an attorney to counsel you through creating a comprehensive estate plan to save your family the headache of all of these horror stories is so much less than the cost of administering your estate through probate court. Um, I can't set a reasonable fee, a flat fee for doing that work on the back end because I have no idea what's coming until I'm into it. Right. But I can tell you what it's going to cost to set up your plan at the outset once yeah. I know what kind of a plan and what we're doing. Yeah. So um, it's it's kind of that present value of money versus future savings yeah. of money question. But we don't do this because we want this for ourselves. This is not something anybody ever walks into my office and says, I thought I'd treat myself to an estate plan yeah. today. You know, <laughs> you um, do it for your kids. Have I a mean, pedicure and a massage yeah. and an estate plan today. <laughs> no, you do it for the people you love. Yeah. Um, so horror stories, um, two examples that I see all the time, like constantly, and I wish I could avoid them. Number one, um, the spouse who owns everything jointly with her with husband, a, okay. let's say, okay, yep. married couple, man and woman, um, husband dies, and the wife says everything was owned jointly. We owned our house jointly. We owned all our bank accounts, brokerage, everything. Everything else was um retirement was designating me as beneficiary it was so easy and so fabulous i didn't even have to pay an attorney oh. it was wonderful and then they don't think they need and to do and now own. it's all done and now they come to me and a significant period of time at least 9 or 12 months has passed where they've already received and taken advantage of and benefited from all those inherited or yeah. received accounts well now legally we're past the point of doing anything about that you have a limited period of time under the law in which you can disclaim assets and kind of do something about them. That ship has sailed when a year plus has gone by. And so now the spouse will come to me with significant assets that we did not take advantage of the The estate tax exemption of the first spouse to die. I can't do anything about that. I'm sorry. So is there a period of time after the first spouse's death where you can take advantage of that exemption? If you have the right paperwork, if you have the right trust planning in place, then you can do these things. But um, So don't plan on it, but maybe... But I said don't plan on being able to retroactively. Right. You, yeah. But, okay. There there are some things that you can do after the fact that might be beneficial depending on the circumstances. But if too much time passes, that ship sails and, okay. and that's game over. Okay. Um, but so people will think that by having everything jointly owned, they've solved the problem, except that there are certain opportunities that you miss out on by doing it that way. Yeah. So that's when I see from it all estate, the time. From, from an estate, estate tax, tax planning point of, view. Okay. point of view. Absolutely. And also, does that person then think that naming uh, one of their kids as a jointly owned person now on their new assets is going to solve their estate planning problems and they don't have to do traditional estate planning right if they have adult children they'll do that almost all the time and then we come back to the same problems before well now that account if it's jointly owned it truly is jointly owned with that child and maybe they do everything right but maybe it causes an income tax problems to that adult child yeah um, or in the event of a divorce or a lawsuit, those assets are now on the table. Right, yeah. right. Okay. 
um, or just family drama that comes up yeah. because well-meaning, well-intentioned people mixed with money and grieving can be a recipe for problems. Okay. So there's a better way to do it. Um, the other one that I see all the time, all the time, all the time is with regard to um, sometimes primary residences, but more often it's the vacation home. It's that cottage that's on the lake, the cottage on the Cape, the yeah. New Hampshire, Vermont, Maine, yep. you know, vacation home, yeah. um, the Florida condo, whatever it is. It's yeah. somebody's vacation home. And the intention is um, the parents say, we have all our family memories there. This has been our home. And I want the kids to have this place and benefit and take their kids. Yeah. And I want to keep this in the family. So I'm just going to give it to both of them. And then they'll work it out. It's almost always better if the intention is that truly this be kind of like a legacy property that the family benefits from and shares those memories going forward. And I'm not talking about the value of the property being so astronomical, but the sentiment behind it. If the intention is to preserve this as a home that the family can continue to share and enjoy long term, then let's talk about setting it up in such a way that we're looking far into the future and thinking about things like, well, if now my adult daughters are married, better yet let's say I have sons Um, now my adult sons are married and their wives really disagree about how to decorate this place Oh, I see what you're saying. One of them yep. hates the way it's decorated. Is the is the other one going to show up and find it's been completely revised? What if we need a new roof on this cottage? Who's paying for that? Yeah. What if it needs a new boiler? What um, if one wants to sell and the other one doesn't? What if one wants to sell and the other doesn't? Well, they'll just buy each other out. Okay, but where are they going to come up with the cash right. to buy each what other out? What if they can't out? get financing? Yeah. What if one of them lives in California and we're talking about a Cape house and the other one lives on the South Shore? Yeah. Well, maybe the one in California really doesn't want to be burdened with paying property taxes on that anymore yeah. so there, so there are ways the, to what's structure the solution? it is it some sort so of trust? it's another reason to set up a trust okay. is set up a trust to own the vacation home to structure who gets to use it fourth of july and labor day weekend oh and, wow um okay. and and what weekends yeah. christmas and thanksgiving and you know the february school break and april yeah. school break and yeah. really structure this thing out and of course you can revise it and change it over time but don't set the kids up to fight with one another interesting okay Anything else jump out as a, an estate planning no-no or a lack of estate planning no-no? So I think um, we kind of touched on it before, but the the other biggest thing is always that people don't really understand what they have. They don't know what kind of a plan they have. They don't understand, is it a trust? Is it a yeah. will? I think I have one of those things. I don't know. My, yeah. I did it when my first kid was born 10, 12, 15 years ago. Um, I think it's something that, yes, it's complicated, but if done well, you don't need to understand all the different you know, if thens and if yeah. if you have this kind of trust versus that kind, all you need to really care about and understand is your own plan, your own trust or your own will and what it's doing for you. Okay. And the rest of it you don't need to trouble your mind with. Yeah. So let really understanding <laughs> exactly. Um okay. let her go home and stress about it. Yeah. No. So one really understanding what you have and if it is in fact a trust based plan ensuring that it is a fully funded trust based yeah. plan and if you have an irrevocable life insurance trust administer it properly it's not going to work if you don't do it the right way in the trust you, you and have make to sure that you're steps. not the yeah. one who's paying the premiums and doing all of the things yeah. it's not going it to work the trust. So. yeah um all right i just had a few questions i um just a couple, random um one of my coworkers 
had posed the question, do I need to be formally named healthcare proxy for my child once they turn 18? Absolutely. Yeah, because that you mentioned earlier that that's the age of majority in Massachusetts. Absolutely. So as if your 18-year-old goes off to college and, God forbid, has an accident and is in the hospital or whatever, you can't access... You, the doctors won't talk to you as a parent once they're over 18, correct? Right. You yeah. just go to the pediatrician's office yeah. with your 18-year-old child. Yeah. I'm, my yeah. oldest is only 14, and I get asked to wait in the hallway while they have a chat amongst themselves. So, yes, um, yeah, okay. if you have a legal adult child, that young adult needs to have his or her own plan. As long as they can say, yes, it's okay to talk to mom, then that's fine. But if they can't speak, you don't get that information. Okay. Um, one more um, do I need legal documents if I have little to no assets? Yes. Okay. Because there's something to deal with, and you have a body, and you have a <laughs> mind, and you have a family, and so yeah. yes, somebody needs to be taking care of you if you can't take. I care didn't of mean I. I'm a very good yeah, saver. Yeah. <laughs> Excuse me. Based on what I do, I'm a very good saver. Um, all right. I guess we'll. We only have another couple minutes. I wanted to give you the option, um, the opportunity, one more time to just give out your contact information again. I've been talking with Danielle Van S. Um, an estate planning attorney for uh, with DGVE Law in downtown Hingham. Uh, is that considered downtown Hingham? It, it is. is. Hingham, it's Square. Hingham Square. Okay, right. thank you. Hingham Square. Cutest little square in the South Shore. And I don't even live in Hingham, but I think it's cute. Um, and your website is dgvelaw.com. Correct. And that's like D like Danielle. G like girl, V like Victor, E like Edward. Okay, law.com. And you, why don't you give out your phone number one more time? The phone number is 781-740-0848. And you can also send an email to info at dgvelaw.com. Okay, perfect. Danielle, thank you so much for being here this morning. Thank you for Our conversations me. are always enlightening and as exciting as they can be um, given the subject matter which is exciting for me actually no I always learn something new in the world of estate planning um, my name is Alyssa McNamara Reed I'm with McNamara Financial right here in Marshfield thank you everyone for listening so sorry we couldn't take calls this morning we will be live again next week uh, have a great weekend everyone bye bye